Okay, we're live. Welcome to Retire Japan, the show where we talk about personal finance, investing, retirement, and life in Japan. And today we have a very interesting guest.、Um, I've actually been binging your Twitter feed today.、Uh, mm. And it's <laughs> incredible how you managed to combine all these different areas、uh, that, yeah, I don't see how you have the time. <laughs> <laughs> It's <I> unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So on Twitter, you're called、uh, Paprika Girl.、Uh, and that's basically who I know you as.、Um, we've just met about five minutes ago <laughs> on the stream here.、Um, but so my, my impression of you is kind of kimono and tea ceremony and very traditional Japanese culture. And,、uh, and your Japanese is amazing. I've seen you. Talking in a few interviews and things. And、uh, I'm just really impressed. So, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and how you ended up living in Japan and doing all these things?、Um, yes, my name is、um, uh, Riki Okanda. I have been in Japan now for 20 years,、um, originally from Chicago. I transferred in、um, from DePaul University in Chicago over to ICU over here in the Mitaka area. And、um, after graduation, I went into the film industry.、Um, I've been working in the、um, directorial team there for the last, oh goodness, what, 18 years now? <laughs>、um, yes, I think that's about it. That's me. <laughs> so,、uh, how did you learn Japanese? Is that from university or? Oh, well,、um, well uh, the local izakaya. So, after classes, you know, what do, what do, you, what do you college kids do? Is they, they go drinking, you know, testing the beer, as they would say. And so, I would go to the local izakaya, which、um, everybody did. And you go there, you hang out with everyone else who's drinking there. And of course, everyone else who's drinking there is all probably going to be Japanese, considering. And you talk to the local ojisan who's sitting next to you, and you talk to the guy、uh, sitting at the table over there. And,、um, It's very friendly over in the Kichijoji area. So、uh, it's, it's easy to make friends there. And what, you'll get what, into all sorts of conversations. So that's where it starts. And it'll.、Yeah. What attracted you to Japan as opposed to any other country? Oh, <laughs> well,、um, I grew up in many different countries when I was young.、Oh. And so I wasn't based entirely in Chicago, I was born there. But、um, for example, I did my A levels over in Malvern in England. Oh,、um, oh very nice. Very nice. It's a very nice area. I quite like it.、Um, but, so I went from country to country all throughout my youth. And when I was going to go to college,、um, I thought, well, Chicago would be the natural place to go, I thought,、um, because you know, I'm from there and my parents are from there. And while I was in Chicago, however, they treated me as a,、um, as a foreign exchange student in terms of events. So even though I went, I trans, I.、Um, Finished at the American International School of Budapest,、um, they put me with a bunch of kids who were from all other, a whole bunch of other countries. And among those people in the, were Japanese people. And so I get to know these Japanese people, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm in Chicago and I'm tired of Chicago. <laughs> I've been in so many other countries, and why am I here? I want to go somewhere else. And then, of course, it was the Japanese people who were around me who said, well, Why don't you go to Japan? I had nothing about Japan. Um, but I was like, okay, <laughs> I mean, it's, I've never been there, so why not? 
And um, by chance, uh, I knew someone over at this particular, I was looking into it and I found this particular college over at ICU. And I thought, well, that would be an ideal place. And I just kind of, I just kind of transferred right away. I didn't really think about it very deeply. I was like, okay, I'm going to go over there, dad. And dad's like, I don't care. Sure. He was in Greece at the time. So he's like, wow. okay, I'm going to Chicago to Japan. It's no big deal. Other end of the world. But yeah. Wow. Like and what, what did you study at ICU? Uh, I ended up with a degree in what's called a philosophy of science. Okay. So um, it's, I only did undergrad, but um, it is the study of the development of scientific discovery within the context of particular um, time periods and philosophies and ways of thought. And so what kind of a context created what kind of a thought process, right? And it was, it, it was it's a kind of philosophy, <laughs> really. Um, it's useful in terms of looking for, at, for larger patterns in society and um, looking back um, in the past in order to predict the future, essentially. So, okay, this has happened in the past before. What can we do with this information so that it goes into a better direction in the future? It's, it's, it's kind of like a planning based on um, the study of uh, the history. Yeah. Wow, it's like um, like foundation, Isaac Asimov's foundation, where they use the, the history to predict the future kind of thing. Like... Yes, in that sort of direction. Sounds quite a sort so of left brain that... and right brain course. Yes, it is. And it was quite complicated because at my, my school on ICU, they, it's very rare to have that particular um, uh, field of study because in Japan, they kind of, it's separated into the, either the sciences or mm. the arts. Yep. Right, and ICU is one of those places where you could do both as a major. So that's what, oh, one of the benefits. Like that. Thing. Was that in English or in Japanese? Oh, it was. It was a little bit of both. Okay. So, um, if a teacher would recommend something, like in go read, I don't know, Leviathan. Uh, well, the Japanese students would go read Leviathan in Japanese, and then I would read it in English, right? So um, since you could, all the material was accessible in both languages. And also, when I was writing my um, uh, my sotsuyoronbu, uh, my um, graduation uh, thesis. thesis, thesis. Thank you. <laughs> when I was writing my thesis, I could write it in English. So ICU was a very good college in that regard. So let, let me study at my own pace with regards to language. So I was immersed, but I wasn't um, drowning in it. Yeah. Now, I know lots of people are going to be interested in this, but how do you go from undergraduate in you know, the philosophy of science into working in TV and film and so on in Japan? Well, um, when I first arrived in Japan, I didn't speak any Japanese. And um, I only had the very, very basics. I could just maybe read a couple squiggles. And um, there aren't very many jobs for people who don't really mm. speak the language. So um, as a student, what did I do is I, when television, you can do television extras. And extra work is quite easy. You just stand there and you smile or you walk or you carry something and look very foreign. <laughs> and that's very easy for anyone to do. So um, I started that. I just signed up for a whole bunch of those agencies. And um, I just went to as many of these different extra jobs as possible, standing in the background of these things. But, you know, I'm a college student and um, I'm very analytical. So, you know, standing around doing nothing is not going to 
it's not very interesting, you know, and I don't really want to talk about them things. I just, I was more interested in what the staff was doing. So I was looking at the staff like, wait, oh, hey, what's he doing? He's running that direction. Why is he running in that direction? And I was trying to figure out what's going on on set. So I started asking questions and they would be, they would answer me. So, well, this is the, this is the script and this is the clapperboard and this is the, this, and this is the, that I'm like, tell me more. And then I got to know the staff and the staff became friends they would take me out to the izakaya. So while I was studying Japanese, I was studying um, Japanese film, Japanese. Mm. So I was getting in, just getting into it, getting to know these wonderful people. And they were introducing me to directors and producers and all these people who are doing all this crazy stuff in film. And so that became my world. And as a result, when I had to graduate university, I wasn't thinking about anything because I'm a university student. We don't think about things much. <laughs> and they just told me, they're like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, why don't you be a director? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So it's not, it's not what you know. It's who you know. <laughs> oh, very much so. Very much so. I mean, right. the people you hang out with are the ones who are going to create your world. So, yeah, my world was created by those great people behind the camera. So. And you've well, been doing it ever since. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, yes. I Well, it's one of those interesting things. I mean, if you want to really delve into it, you can tell. But um, I was I came to Japan exactly 20 years ago. And this was during the whole um, right just just before the Lehman crash. They would call Lehman shock over here in Japan. And yeah. what were they doing? They were selling this image of Furita and Baito and Nito and all these interesting words that would define someone who was not um, employed in a regular company. Right. And so we weren't necessarily encouraged to enter a regular company. We were encouraged to do what we want to do, but do it part time, of course. And so this was the, the whole um, kind of atmosphere that Japan was uh, that I graduated into. And so going into the directorial team or something like that was not a big leap at the time. But the problem is, is that that was not sustainable. And um, of course, after the Lehman crash, uh, all of a sudden there was no free time work. Right. So you either had a choice of staying in the industry that you had, which is really the only choice I had, or completely jumping off the drop off of the ship and trying something brand new. So it's one or the other. And, you know, I'm stubborn. So I just stuck with it. And um, I just had no choice, really. And so it's from one project to the next project and to the next project. And um, it's quite difficult to, to sustain that, of course. But, you know, suddenly you're here for 22 years. So, mm. so is that is that a collection of one-off jobs? So you're not employed um, at a certain company. It's more like you do projects. Yes, that's right. Oh. So every three months you have a new, uh, a new season. It's called a kuru. In Japanese, you have a new cool. I think that's French, actually. And um, it, when you're doing the season, one season is three to four months, right? And so they, you have a set number of key members for the team. And for the directorial team, you'll have about five people, right? And um, what you want to do is you want to go from one kuru to the next kuru. And the next one should probably, you're usually bring, being brought by members of the previous team. So they'll bring you on to the, the next one because they're going to need someone in that position for the next TV show. And so you're going on and on for that. Or if it's television and when they'll have something planned like a movie or something after that particular drama series, well, then they'll ask you if you'll do that position um, for the TV, for the um, movie. So it's from one to the next, to the next, to the next, um, usually at a pace of about either one month up, up to four months. So. It's um, it's in a way 
it's not um, it's not regular work, so you're not getting an exact paycheck every month and for the same amount, which is relatively frustrating, especially in the beginning when you're starting to get yourself into that kind of a rhythm of being able to do a job. But um, once you get into the cycle of it, then you know what to expect for the next uh, for the next kudu and for the next project, and so you can kind of um, organize your life around that kind of a schedule. Does that if, hurt with getting a home loan or a credit card or something like that? Um, it did 20 years ago. Oh. So at the time, I'm, I mean, I've never taken out a loan. So um, I haven't had that kind of a problem so far. That said, um, when it comes to credit cards, they would not accept you uh, 20 years ago. I mean, you could not get a credit card under that system. You mm -hmm. had to be employed at one single place. Yeah. Um, I got around that by there were uh, there are production companies and their production companies that I work with often. And so I'll mention that to the production company and they'll say, Oh, well, you can get one through our company. And oh. so they'll, they'll kind of help you out in that terms. Cause they're used to that staff are all like that. It's not yeah. just me, but um, they, they kind of, there's there are ways to fill those problems and you do it just simply by asking. And mm, it's a, right. like I said, it's, it's an irregular industry. And so, Everything is a special case. Every single person on the staff is a special case. So they, everyone has their own thing that they have to resolve or get over. Maybe there's an illness. Maybe there's a family thing. Maybe there's some sort of a financial difficulty they're going through. And by sharing these problems, usually at the isekai after working, mm -hmm. oh, so-and-so does that or so-and-so does that. And they'll kind of take care of each other in that sort of a net, which is the film industry here. It's kind of like a mutual aid, informal mutual aid society. Very setup. much. So. Mm. If if someone was interested in you know getting started in the industry, um, what how should they go about that? Do you think in twenty twenty three? Um. Well, let's see. Well, um, this is going to be the same in any country you go to, but you got to learn language, right? But you don't have to learn the language as like a native because I still I'm 20 or 20 years and I don't know the language like a native. But you have to be able to communicate back and forth, right? And if you're young, you're, you, have, you have a benefit because if you're young, you, you still have a lot of muscles on you and, you're, you know, and you can um, take in a lot of calories and not get too much around the waist and you can kind of run and do things and you can grouch about your bosses, of course, but you, but, um, you, can, you can take it. You know what I mean? And so you could easily go over to a film production company and you can say, hi, I want to work in film. And they're going to go, we don't have enough people. You stand there and they will, they will take you on. They, most likely they will take you on. Really? Um, they won't necessarily provide you a visa. So if you're a foreigner, you're going to have to apply for, I think in the beginning for me, it was a specialist in the arts. That was the visa that I got initially. And so I just got the specialist in the arts visa and um, I went by myself and I just kind of applied for it. And then I went over to these companies and I'm like, and, you know, just stand there. Even if you don't know what you're doing, which because you don't, when you begin, you have no idea what's going on. But you're standing there and someone's going to give you an order and you follow the order. And if you go to the next one, you follow the order. And then you're following these orders until suddenly you're the one giving the orders. Mm. Right? So, <laughs> like you have to climb that ladder of, gosh, I hate this guy to, huh, now I'm your boss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. it's, it's a very slow learning process, but that it's easy to get into if you really, really want to do it. Okay. Do you have young people joining your your productions then, I guess? Oh, constantly, yes. Everything, we, we need them. So um, the directorial team in Japan is a little different than in the United States. 
the United States, you have the director, you have um, the chief assistant director, and you have the second assistant director. First AD, second AD. The first AD is the one who runs the set. The second AD is the one who does the schedules. Well, in Japan, it's a little different. Everybody goes in at the bottom. And the bottom rank is, is the fourth assistant director. The fourth assistant director is a runner. They go and they get the coffee. They make the copies. Um, if they're on set, that's what a one. runner does. Okay. Yes. <laughs> that's what you do. He's literally a runner. Okay. It's literally, you, well, that's why we need the young people, though. They actually have to run to go from place to place to get the information across, to pass out the papers to everyone who needs them, to give a band aid to the person who fell down over there. That's his job. And so the third assistant director, once you're all used to that, is you have a clapperboard. Right. And in the United States, that's done by the camera crew. But in Japan, it's done by the third assistant director. The third assistant director has the camera board. So they so like, go right in front of the camera and go click like that. And they'll tell you the scene and the, um, and the cut and what production it is. And they're also in charge of the art. So if, you know, I have a scroll over here, but they'll be the ones to get that scroll and make sure it's there for this particular scene. Um, they, the, they, are the one on set who's not passing out paper, who runs a heck of a lot. So it has to be a young person. Um, and then you go over to the second assistant director and assistant direct, second assistant director is either one of two things. You're either running the set in tandem with the first assistant director, or you're in charge of um, the costumes, you're in charge of extras, you're in charge of um, writing new lines. If the lines don't quite match up with, like they could say, oh, what wonderful weather, and it could be raining and you can't change the scene. Well, then you should say something. Instead of wonderful weather, you'd be like, oh, look at that downpour. I mean, that's the, the second assistant director is in charge of making sure that that's matching up with the script, right? Mm. And the chief assistant director is the one who's either running the set or he's off the set writing the, writing the um, schedule or getting in contact with the rest of the crew, um, whatever it may be. But you have to fit into one of those four ranks, right? And the more you know, the higher you get up the rank, right? And so if the director, for example, um, the one that I started out doing, but he he's kind of a strange pickle where he doesn't want to work today. So he'll get there and then he'll look at the script. you be like, eh, you do it. And then he'll leave it to the team. So that'd be the first assistant director and the second assistant director taking care of that. Um, so it, it starts out young. And if you get a little bit older and you get a bit a little bit older and the more experience that you have, the, that kind of a, they'll put you in that particular role, which you can handle. And so it's wow. an interesting ladder, but it's fun. So, yeah, we need we need young people. Come on, you guys. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Everyone's always trying to get out of English teaching. So, yeah, oh, this yeah. might be the next step. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> so just to branch off a bit so the 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 main thing that i get from your twitter feed is this kind of kimono and this love of kimono and this this kind of deep understanding of kimono and where did that come from is that something you picked up here just in passing oh yes um this this was a bit of good luck i suppose um as marriage is but um my husband is also an, from icu so we went to the same uh, university and we had the same um, uh, the thesis director and he went on to get his doctorate um, where I, whereas I just went to my undergrad, but his background is quite interesting. So his um, grandfather was an absolutely amazing gentleman who um, he, he started a, a very large publishing company, which is still in works today. Um, and he, uh, during the war, for example, he, um, he was personal guard to the emperor. Uh, 
So he didn't actually go to the battlefield. He stood around with the emperor and, and chit-chatted with him on a daily basis during that time. Um, and his and his wife, well, his grandma, <laughs> was um, a geisha in the Kagurazaka area. And so in Kagurazaka um, is was a very very um, well, it was a, it was a very high class area to hang out. So you only go there if you're if you're hoity toity, right? And so one of the rules, of course, is that you um, you never show the same kimono to um, a visitor twice. Oh. And so you have this kind of a of a. And she used to have this kind of a diary of what kimono she was wearing at what time and who and what were the um, people who came in to have a drink that day. You know. Wow. So you have to keep track of that. Oh, she is. She used to do that. That was wonderful kind of a thing. To, I saw that. She saw that. Showed that to me once. But as a result, she has hundreds and hundreds of kimono. We're talking a lot of kimono. We have at least, and in this house, I have at least 100 and 120 or something. Um, and then at the main Jika house, which is on Mount Fuji, um, we have another room I haven't even opened. And I haven't even gone to grandma's house. So I don't even know what's there. So, I mean, I'm happy with what's here now. <laughs> this is just fine. But um, because I was working in television as an AD, you have a uniform of nothing but T-shirts and jeans. And T-shirts and jeans is not acceptable for a young lady, you know. And um, it, there was this one point that I was invited to a party with the governor of Akita. And I was fretting about what am I going to wear because I have t-shirts and jeans and t-shirts and jeans and then grandmother goes well you'd go in kimono of course oh of course grandma yes of course that's wonderful where do I get one of those and so grandma she goes upstairs she comes back down she and then she she shows me this is where this is how you wear it this is what you're going to do and so grandmother was the reason why I started to wear kimono and it was because I wanted to retain my femininity while doing that on set kind of a heavy job where I decided, well, every time I'm not going to be filming, then I'm going to be in kimono. That's just the way it has to be. Mm. And, uh, that's why just little by little, once you start wearing them, you know, you end up with a wardrobe of basically kimono and places to wear them and ways to wear them so that it kind of really encompasses your entire life. So, so you kind of married into it, kind of. Oh yeah, very much so. <laughs> very much so. So I, I guess you've got different types of kimono for winter and summer and so on. Like, oh yes, yes. I can't very imagine seasonal. wearing something like that at the moment in this kind of thirty odd degree heat. Or, but does it work? I don't know. Well, I don't know if you can tell, but so this one, you, I think you can see a little bit. It's practically see through. Can you know if you can see that or not? Um, this is this is called no. No is a is a material which is like lace. Um, it lets in the air, so uh, it's for summer. That's a, that's the kind of material it is. Um, it's also the the pattern is also very seasonal. So you have over here the Fuji flowers on top of here and Kiku over here. So this would be a very this would be a spring summer kind of a um, flower. Well, as you go through the months, um, the flower and the pattern will change. And winter kimonos will have winter patterns. And you always want to wear a floral pattern, which is slightly early for the season. So oh. in other words, you'll be wearing sakura at the beginning of March. Oh, so you're foreshadowing the seasons, as it were. Yes, that's right. Oh. So that people who are viewing it, the people who are viewing it, they're going to, um, they're going to look forward to something happening. Because they, they haven't seen that flower yet. Oh, is that flower already out? No, not at all. You've got that to look forward to. 
So that's the whole design of kimono and, of course, tokonoma and things like that. Everything's just slightly early on purpose. That's why all the supermarkets have the sakura and the momiji out so early. It's all... Yes, yes, yes. It's about one... It's about... Oh. It's supposed to be about three weeks early, ideally. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> makes cool. sense now. <laughs> There's a whole cycle to it. It gets a lot we of learn fun. learn something new. Every time we do a, one of these live streams, we learn a lot. <laughs> yeah. Not always about finance. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, <laughs> do you find that you know a few people that are into this? Or is it, is it usually just you kind of rocking um, the kimono and explaining? I, I, I guess most Japanese people don't know this stuff either, right? Um, That's true. Um, it. It's because I was wearing. It's because I wear kimono that my husband um, relented, and he too began to wear kimono more often. Oh, um, nice. well, he's getting. We're getting older in a nice way, and you know, it's, jeans are great if you're if you're at home and doing nothing. But when you're in a semi-formal environment, um, jeans they they can only go so far, right? So, he, being a historian as he is, and um, he he started to wear kimonos because I was wearing them and he, cause he didn't know what he was doing. So he would ask me, okay, well get something ready for me and I'll, I'll wear it. And so I ended up being his stylist in that sense. But um, there's something about kimonos where um, a, ki a well-worn kimono ensemble will uh, open up certain doors, right? So the reason I do tea is slightly grandma influenced because I do have her things, but I never learned tea from grandma. Instead, um, I would be in Kyoto and I would be at a so-and-so party and other people who'd be wearing kimono, Kyoto is the city for kimono. So if you go there, they will look at what you're wearing and they can discern where it is and where it was possibly made, Ooh. everything. They can really kind of, they really know what they're doing because that's where most of them are made. So if I wanted to make something like this, they'd send the fabric to Kyoto to get it done. But while I'd be there, they would look at the kimono and the ones that my grandma or grandmother-in-law um, owned were very, very high status. So these are um, imperial level stuff. And so they would assume that I would have to have a, some sort of connection in that area in order to have something like that. And so they would come and talk to me and they'll, you know, they'll realize that I'm not a tourist. I wasn't given this off of some, something. This belongs to me. And this is the way I wear it personally. So that's when they'd open the doors. They're like, oh, well, in that case, we're having a, spe a special um, tea ceremony at so-and-so place. And you'll go there and there'll be all these like super kaicho, like high level <laughs> kind of politicians there. <laughs> like I'm not a politician. My husband's mm -hmm. kind of getting in that direction. But, um, but they would assume that based on what you're wearing, you're of what status in society, right? Mm. And that has been a, a boon in so many ways. I mean, I can't mm. explain how important that's been to me. And it's all because of grandmother, really. Wow. So It's kind um, of like having a really nice business card. It is. <laughs> it really is. Except that only certain people understand it. Well, here's the thing. If you, if you go back into, um, if you watch uh, certain kinds of, Jidai geki kind of films and things like that. You will notice that a kimono is somebody's calling card, and that's not a joke. They'll be like, "Oh, so and so kimono," because there's only one of a kind. You can't make. They didn't have this whole mass production like they do today, right? So even today, kimonos, if there's a certain pattern of it, no one else is going to have that pattern and combination. Mm -hmm. It's just not made, right? So to wear that, they're like, "Oh, so and so kimono was on this person," and they will remember that. So it is, you're half joking, but you're half right, actually. Mm. Um, 
someone's kimono is it defines who they are very much so so, so get yourself a good completely kimono. different side of society that i'm not even aware of it's incredible yeah it's wonderful it really is if it weren't for if it weren't for that i wouldn't been, have been able to have all these wonderful opportunities that um i have and of course when you're around like i said you know the people who you hang out with are the people who are going to create your world right and so if you you're surrounded by people who um own tea bowls which are in um museums then you're going to learn about the history of the tea bowl and museums and why this is an important why does this one in the museum and this one not well they're going to tell you that because they're going especially being a foreigner that's a good thing because mm -hmm. you look like you don't know anything right and so even if you know something you can be like oh really <laughs> but they're going to explain to you things that um otherwise information that they wouldn't have told you if you were japanese because they'd assume you'd already know I find that right so and people love to teach things don't they and tell oh, you yeah. about their stories so <laughs> oh mm. yes i love stories so it's perfect <laughs> so this is the perfect way to network basically oh yes wear your kimonos and get them made well mm. <laughs> i have a kimono that uh i wore at my wedding but that's oh, it so. that's wonderful though that's a good place I've, to start <laughs> <laughs> I dread to think what the pattern says about me, but it's probably going to be a marriage kimono. So there's only so much you can say. <laughs> but yeah, yukata is fine too. <laughs> oh, so, do you also play the shamisen? I think, or you own I'm, the shamisen? I'm learning. Um, okay. It's grandmother's shamisen, so um, it is located in the house somewhere i'm gonna hide it but um i take uh lessons my um so shamisen teacher is from hino and i'm in kitijoji so that's um it would be about an hour or so away from here but the teacher is so kind as to um i'm lucky that i have a, a large uh, place you know a zashiki room which is made for just receiving guests so um um, he's kind enough to drive all the way out here and um, and we can play shamisen in my house and everything with the windows open and, and the neighbors seem to enjoy it. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> That's nice. very long, so I'll try. <laughs> I'll oh. try to, I'll try, I'll try to do better so that maybe sometime I can um, perform something for you. <laughs> yeah, next, <laughs> next time we have you on, <laughs> we'll, have a, we'll have a live <laughs> performance as well. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Oh dear. We we have a, a couple of comments actually in the, the various chats that we've got going on. Um, somebody just says uh, hello, Komama. I'm enjoying your fascinating hello, story. Mama. Thank you for sharing it, Rokana-san. That's uh, Rie, Rie Sam. Oh, um, thank you very much, dear. And then one person earlier on asked when they heard about your sort of your family upbringing in all these different countries. They said, "Oh, so your parents are diplomats? Is that right?" Not exactly. Uh, my father is a. Uh, he is. Um, a Keizai Gaksha. He's an uh, economist. So he's an economist, as a, but he's not, um, a I guess he's a lecturer, I suppose. He was an oh, economist. Wow. And um, we went first to Europe uh, when the wall fell in 1989. Oh. Um, so I was a little kid back then, but um, it was the economy of Budapest or Hungary changed significantly uh, at okay. that time because Hungary had a, a large amount of hidden money. Right. So um, we were behind the Easter block, but they're always saying to Russia, we don't have any money. We don't have any money. Oh. But they actually had quite a lot. So when um, mm -hmm. the wall fell, they opened that up and all of a sudden investment came over to Budapest right away. And so my father went to go study um, how that's working out. 
And so since then, he's been to places like, you know, Greece or um, Dubai during the Dubai bubble. So right now he's all, I think right now he's also in Greece. But um, he goes from country to country whenever there seems to be some economic change. And mm. he's studying that and the potential for that. So. Oh, I see. Not wow. quite diplomats, but um, on, the same, on that same kind of a ring of expats, yes. Right. <laughs> Interesting. So you kind of grew up everywhere and, and nowhere, as it were? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah, nowhere. I had that. So it's kind of the third culture kid thing. So Yeah. Third culture kids are like that, you know. It's like, where is your home? And it's like, well. <laughs> and it's like, where are you yeah. from? <laughs> Wherever <laughs> I happen to be. <laughs> it's true. 20 years in Japan, it's going to make it here in Kichijoji. That's my home now. <laughs> so Daniel, I think you caught one of uh, the TV shows. Yes. Um, so this is how I sort of first know you, I think. Oh, no, no. I, I saw you mention it on Twitter. Um, I read Isabella Bird's um, book several years ago, just only because it was free on Project Gutenberg, because it's out of copyright. <laughs> it's about Japan. So okay, I'll read that. <laughs> and it was fascinating. I just, oh, wow, wow. An incredible woman. Incredible story. And then I, I was really strange. Nobody I knew at that time in the Japanese community had ever heard of it or read it. And then um, and HK comes out with a program about it with you playing Isabella Bird in the first part of her journey. Uh, so I was really pleased to see that reenacted, more people aware of that. Um, well, first of all, thank you for sort of bringing that to life. How did you sort of get into that? Is that because of your, obviously, your, your TV connections or um, you, well, yes. you approach them or what happened? Oh, no, no. Um, it's quite the opposite. Actually, a friend of mine who's a director over there, Miss um, Hilta, um, she had been studying Isabella Bird for um, quite some time, and she wanted to make a documentary on it. Well, um, the thing is, is that there's not a lot of money for documentaries. So um, NHK World, which was the production company who did that, was able, they wanted to pick up, they would pick up the story, but only as long as she serialized it. The thing is, is that the journeys in Japan kind of a structure is um, you usually have someone who is an ingenue, who goes to um, some place in the in the countryside of Japan? Sometimes it can be Tokyo too, but some place in Japan, and look and imagine and um, experiences it from a perspective from a foreign perspective. So, what do you think of this as a foreigner from, say, Germany or uh, United States or wherever that particular um, guide would be? Uh, but this particular, uh, I'm sorry, but this time instead of having someone experience things and kind of purely uh, giving their opinions on what they saw um, this specific director wanted someone who not only spoke Japanese to a level where um, it would sound normal if you're talking to a Japanese person but you would all where also someone who wasn't giving their impressions of what they feel but instead a reflection on the book as mm -hmm. it is Right. So they wanted a guide who was kind of talking down as opposed to talking up. Right. And that's why she approached me first. Um, I'm not usually a television. I'm not usually in front of the camera, but mm. she wanted in this particular case, she wanted someone like me to do that. Um, but this was just for the intro. This is, this is a serialized uh, thing. So I know that uh, they she did the next leg of the journey was filmed. Um, I think it was in June. I think it's every year it in June. Out, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. So every year in June, during the same period that Isabella Bird was traveling, oh. they wanted to do the whole footsteps thing. Oh, and nice. the next part was filmed with a gentleman. I forget his mm. name, but he was a very um, nice gentleman. Um, 
because they're going to be trekking over mountains. And I didn't want to climb the mountains. <laughs> An old lady, don't, you know. Um, and I think the next one will be with another. Um, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say because you're not allowed to talk about what's going oh. to happen on television next. Yeah, we but, won't um, tell anyone. No, no, no. <laughs> Just everybody. Yeah. But the um, next one is also um, going to be filmed soon with another young lady who is also on Twitter, which um, I'll tell you about that later as soon as I check with the producers and make sure I can mention oh, that. Yeah, yeah. But um, also another young lady who uh, speaks Japanese as well. Um, but yes, this is going to go on for a, a good five, six years, I think. So I might wow. be going back to join the uh, progress a little bit later uh, when there's not any mountains to climb. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, but wow. it's a wonderful um, program. Uh, yes, Journeys in Japan on NHK World. You can see it for free too. Um, I've just put a link in the chat for people actually, yes. Oh. And you touch on some nice sort of old, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Japanese crafts as well. which are Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. Side, side I think what you have to, uh, what's most fun about Isabella Bird is like, um, this is a turn of the century. This is when the uh, travelers and the explorers were all really big in the world. And they were writing all these books about um, about uh, different kinds of countries, exotic places, so that people would read about these, right? You know, they didn't have mm -hmm. photographs at the time, but um, they had these books. Well, what makes Isabella Bird unique is not so much that she's a woman, but the fact that all of her writing is very, very honest and brutally <laughs> honest. <laughs> and that's a good thing because um, Isabella's story is not just um, grouching and it's not only grouching about what she doesn't like. She goes through a character arc. So she didn't want to go to Japan. She was sent over there actually for diplomatic reasons. This was just after the, um, the, um, the, which war was that? Uh, the Boshin War. So it was just after the Boshin War. The Boshin War, if you don't know, um, it decimated East Japan. It absolutely wiped it out. So anything that they had there that would have been Kyoto, they burned it and raised it to the ground. There's nothing, right? Um, so this was only five years after that Isabella Bird was sent over there. And she was sent there um, as an explorer. But the truth of the matter is, is that she was um, sent there because they needed a spy. And she was the only kind of spy that you could go through these certain areas and see what was going on at the time. Um, there's there's a lot to it actually, but oh, anyway, I thought she it was uh, health reasons. You didn't know that, right? Oh, no, I thought it was health reasons that she went. Oh no, no, not health reasons. That's for sure. She did not like that. Um, she did not want to go, and she hated it. And so when she gets there, she hates everything. She's grouching about the weather, about the people, about the food, about the lighting, about the city. She's just like, Bleh. you know, she that drone will be here. But then little by little, as she goes through her, um. Remember what there was there was one um wonderful um example is that the whole time she's complaining that there's no milk for her tea. It, and she can't stand it. And these people are barbarians. How could they not have milk in tea? Everybody knows that milk goes in tea. What horrible, horrible diet they have. They're complaining and complaining. And she goes and she's telling her aide all the time, You guys are barbarians. How how could you not have milk? What's wrong with you? And they go on and on until there's one, they go to some port where another foreign um, diplomat is stationed. They get there, she gets her milk and she's putting it in the tea. And the Japanese guys are laughing at her. 
and she finds out that the Japanese guides are saying, what a barbarian, who would put milk into tea? What a smelly thing to put into your tea, destroying the taste of the tea. And she writes about this, even though it's an embarrassing moment for her, she is honest about it. And she says, okay, maybe I need to stop whining and start getting into this. And little by little, she starts, you know, like I said, she starts out complaining about how ugly and short the people are. And then yeah. partway through, suddenly they're beautiful and they're graceful and they're elegant and they're, um, they're comely. They're all these wonderful words that she's using now to describe them because she falls in love with the country gradually. Right. So um, by the end of it, you realize that she goes through this whole character change of this of this fat menopausal grouch into this woman who just absolutely loves the country and came back three times after that on her own volition. So, um, yes, please read her books. Her books are so wonderful, nice. I swear. <laughs> and, and I guess that's going to be reflected in the, the documentary as well. So. Oh, yes. I do hope. Yes, I, that's what the plan is. Go is stick to the book as much as possible. So. Mm awesome so a complete <laughs> pivot here um but <laughs> i see on twitter that you have an earthquake emergency safe house kind of bug out Ooh. lair somewhere in chiba which i think is amazing okay. please tell us about that okay um it's sawara house um it's over in sawara in chiba it is a um it's an akia essentially so nobody lives there it used to belong to um, the parents of one of my cameramen. And so this cameraman, I've known him for goodness gracious, uh, since I was a student. So I've known him from, from like way back when. And um, what happened was, I don't know, what, how do we even get into this? <laughs> he, um, yes, his, grand, his mother um, passed away and he had to upkeep this house. And so um, he would go back there once a month because they have a garden there and they have all these trees and things. And you have to put, you know, do something to it, kind of dust it off. Otherwise the bugs will get in. And um, while he was doing this, I went with him a few times because he often invites me over to the countryside and we'll go climb mountains or something like that. And um, when we go visit there and I'd help him out with the house and cleaning it up and whatnot. Um, and the more often you go, the less there is the clean, of course, mm -hmm. because um, nothing gets bad as long as people are still letting the air in and out of the house. And um, it was around um, 3.11 when the big um, Kanto earthquake came, when um, all of our lives were kind of shook up. And so we kind of, we, of course, we were in the film industry as well, too. Um, we had to stop our film, our filming for a while because um, nobody wanted to put commercials on television mm. during the, that particular time because it would look mm. kind of, you know, money grubby, you know. So um, if you don't have commercials, you don't have dramas, you don't have any other shows because there's no one to pay for them, right? So we were kind of stuck reevaluating that which we had um, in terms of. Uh, um, it, escape plan plans and the terms of what if there was an earthquake what do we need now i think at the time there was i think it was water for a few there was about a week when um people were um panic buying water for example mm. so um it was at that time that um we also changed our car so my husband and i at the time we were driving an rx8 a mazda rx8 nice. and a mazda rx8 is very low to the ground right so um let's say something flooded right we'd be stuck because we couldn't go anywhere. So we panicked that. And so we got rid of that. And instead we decided to um, 
we traded that in for a Jimny JA11. Cool. And a oh. Jimny JA11 is a 1979 car, so it's all analog, right? So um, no oh. computers or like that. We could fix it with our own hands if we have to and change our own tires. Um, we also had the shackle. We had the um, chassis lifted on there and uh, we big wheels put on there. So it's no longer a K car at that point. But the uh, engine was overhauled as well, too. So we invested in a car where if something were to happen, we could run away in it. Right? And this was happening at the same time as my friend was, um, he was thinking about to do, what to do with the house. And so we, um, he suggested that, well, well, the, we have to wait for this um, whole 311 thing to kind of calm down. Why don't you come to the house over in Sawara? And so we went to Sawara, my husband and myself, and we started to make, of course, he and um, my cameraman started to make these plans. Like, oh, you have a garden here. We could put tomatoes here. I bet we could we could plant this kind of a tree here and this kind of a tree here. And they started to plan out all the things that they would need just in case the world exploded. And mm. um, my husband's also from the Fukushima area. His, his way back is past, comes from Fukushima. So he ended up going as a, part of his job up to um, the uh, Fukushima area, um, which had been Fukushima area and the whole nuts. Uh, we went over to Miyagi. That's right. He, so he was a specialist over in Miyagi and he started to create nigechizu, which are called, which are the evacuation routes mm. in case of oh. emergencies. And so he was bringing back that information to us too. And we're like, well, we need to have a plan. So um, it was at that time that, um, he, everyone in that and he was telling everyone in our group including my cameraman well you have to get first of all you have to get your first first aid certificate everyone has to have the first aid certificate up to the third level um he kind of made a mandate for a house so we were not the ones being helped we should always be the ones helping so we have to be completely independent so that let's say everything is destroyed well how many people can we help from our perspective right now and so Keeping that in mind, we started to stockpile things and we started to make plans for the future. We started to get more involved in the local community and getting to know the heads of the community so that we would be able to raise our hand in case somebody needs help. Um, so that was where the whole Ishiki kind of started as a result of 311. But um, since we had that house over in Sawara, um, he, the actual Meiji, the actually, it's actually owned by my cameraman. But my cameraman has it costs a little money just to make, keep the um, water running through it and things like that. So basic, uh, basic uh, utilities, which is really amounts to less than like we'll send yen, about five thousand yen per month. It's nothing. Um, we'll, we pay that. And of course, I have another. Um, since the two, we go back and forth to kind of tend the garden now and then, get rid of all the bugs and whatnot because we don't use any pesticides. So we have to go in there and kind of pick everything and bring it all home. And so it's the two of us are the two families of ours are not going to be enough. And so we pulled in another camera guy. It's a friend of um, my cameraman. And so the three families right now, we, we kind of go back and forth there maybe once or twice a month to gather whatever needs to be picked, um, get rid of the um, bugs where we can and dust and uh, make sure that we have all the, um, all the farm equipment is fully, fully stocked and things like that. So in case something happens tomorrow, well, everyone's going to be okay. You know, we know where wow, to go. Wow, so you'd all meet at the house kind of thing. If the big Is one there... hits Tokyo or whatever. So we, remember in three, I don't know if you were here. You were here, right? I was here. I was, yeah. here? I was driving around Sendai the next day. 
oh well we should be <laughs> i remember being in we were i was in shibuya i was filming in shibuya and um that film shoot when it when it had when everything started rocking then we were in the studio this all the lights were rocking but Whoa, you have to finish the scary. film shoot you can't stop it so we went on we finished it anyway but by the wow. end of it we couldn't most of i know au i know the au phones were still working right but the other ones like Dokomo and I think uh, what was the other one? Um, SoftBank. Um, they weren't working at the time. So um, that made us think, okay, well, if the big one hits, we're not going to have our phones. Which mm. means that we have to make a plan um, that we have to meet by this particular time um, at this particular location. Right? So we have a plan where we live nearby ICU, our original university. So within three days, if it's a really big one, Right. Oh. And everything's kind of crashed within three days. Everybody meets over at ICU um, and from ICU within within um, on that on the third day, we are all going uh, as a caravan to Sawada. So whether you arrive in, in ICU or if you because you don't have a car or something happened or you need help to get there, you can go there. And then from ICU, we, we go up to Sawada as um, so one of the two places we can meet on a specific schedule. So you're going to have to keep that in mind too. You're wow. not going to be able to contact people the way, you know, all these things. <laughs> That's well incredible. Planned. Like this is, you're, you're basically the Japanese version of a prepper, right? So. <laughs> well, yeah, it's because of my husband. It's what he does. So Less, <laughs> less guns and ammunition and more kind of tomatoes okay. and uh, farm implements, right? Yep. Well, a little bit of everything, you know, <laughs> I do have my sharpshooters um, certificate, by the way, from Chicago. So. Okay. <laughs> Wow. So just in case, and Grandpa was a hunter, by the way. So um, we do, we do. We're one of the few government. Uh, we're one of the few families which does actually um, have that those particular implements. Should something. Wow! Happen. So you, you've got the zombies covered. <laughs> yep, we got the zombies covered. We need silver bullets though. We don't got the werewolves down yet. So. <laughs> that is brilliant. So I guess. Um, because it's retired Japan, we kind of have to. So, could you could you tell us a little bit about how you view kind of personal finance? You know, how you view retirement or savings, or what kind of things you you've become interested in, or any advice for people? Hmm. Well, um, I'm in an interest. I might be in an interesting age bracket because um, what you call in Japanese the ushinawarata um, junin, the lost generation. So uh, we are at the point where um, any anything we pay into Social Security is not going to come back to us. The reason for this is that, as you probably know, um, the population is top heavy right now. So there are um, two or three um, elderly to a uh, single uh, young person. This is just our generation. So the next generation who is uh, in their 20s right now won't have to deal with this. So as a result, we know that there is not going to be any um, Social Security for us when we retire. Um, we're highly aware of that. We are aware of that even while we were in college. So um, our plan at the moment is um, to create a sort of a sustainable lifestyle, um, whereas we're not going to need a whole a lot of money and we're hopefully we're not going to need anything from the government whatsoever. So um, that comes out in terms of um, investment into uh uh, um, so, uh, hold on. Um, things in terms of uh, like writing books, 
for example, that kind of an inze is going to enter. We're um, I'm doing film, of course, so um, film and film writing and things like that is going to be our uh, zaisan. Goodness, yeah, you're kind of wealth. Yeah. Yeah, so you're thinking royalties yeah. and, and income streams. Oh, yes, there it is, there is, the royalties, there it is. So um, our investment is uh, done by royalties, right? So um, we know that when, when there is going to be some sort of uh, Social Security, which does come our way, it's not going to be enough to cover our particular generation. So we know this, and as a result, we're, we're, putting, we're putting that into mind. In addition to that, we also have um, a, there's a hoken, there's a separate, separate what is it? What is it? Hoken. Um, insurance. Insurance. We have a separate insurance. So my husband started his own company. And the reason he did that is because that's how you can get by extreme taxes in Japan. The taxes are very, very high in this country. So in our tax bracket, we pay something like 60% of our income goes to taxes. But the only way you can keep all that, all to, um, keep all that within the family is by putting it in a company, right? And so you start this company and this company um, will protect the livelihoods of its employees after um, retirement. Right. And this is your own company, of course. Right. So that's how the, that's how it kind of works out. But we are having this is still early on in the, in the process of it. So this is something that's going to be beneficial to us within 20, you know, 20 years, 25, 30 years down the line. So this is not beneficial to us now, but we're going to eventually get to that point where it was like, okay, we would like to have a little bit of money for us to um, survive on. And, oh, oh, there's nothing there. Okay. In that case, we're going to, we're going to, um, uh, we're going to have some sort of backup for that. And that's going to be the investment we've made into the um, uh, Chiteki Zaisan, you know, um, uh, intellectual property. Right, right. I think, I think it's sensible to not rely on external factors, whether that's yeah. pensions or whatever. So that's uh, always been my my thinking. You know, I'd rather make sure I'm okay, and then if we get anything else, that's just a bonus. So you said that was a Kabushiki Gaisha or a Yugen Gaisha, or, or what structure? Um, I think it's a Yugen Gaisha. Right. I'm not entirely sure. I'm like, we're have, we have a tax person to deal with that stuff, and he oh, knows okay. this stuff. I don't right. know. I, I'm a filmmaker, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I can tell you. I can tell you about Zemeckis, but I can't tell you about taxes. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a, a comment in the a question in the okay. Facebook comments. Actually, isn't Kosei Nenkin protected and based on individuals' income and how much they've paid in? So I uh, believe, I, yes. officially, it is I protected, do. but. Officially, it should be. Who knows? It's yeah, it's it's not quite yeah. that simple. I think so. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. You don't have an account. So there, there's yeah. a there's a, there's an enormous pension fund. It's the, it's one of the large. I think it's the largest pension yeah. fund in the world. The the government pension fund yeah. of Japan. It's, it's yeah, it, yeah mind bogglingly large. But we also have a a lot of old people. So yeah. So uh, um, it's just going to be my generation that suffers. So if you're younger than me, and I'm. I'm uh, around 40 mm. if you're younger than me or you're older than me then you're not going to have the same problem so arafo the lost generation the ushinawarate junen as they call it um that's the that's the one age bracket which is we're we're underneath the um nanjikana the baby boom baby boomers so yeah. it just comes right down on top of us and that's the reason why our particular um our particular age group is going to be suffering in the future. But I mean, that's one of those things that's in all the debates right now on television. So if you have old people, 
which are <laughs> old people, old people sitting on on, on television in suits telling mm. what are we going to do about the 19 Sado and everything like that. Well, that's what they're whining about. So they don't have to deal with it, of course, but they're the ones who are um, who are saying, well, we should do this and we should do that. And nobody does anything. So we can't wait for them to make a decision so that we're safe. We have to take care of our own lives. So just the way it is. I think that makes sense. Even now, Nankin's not particularly generous. You know, it's no, kind it's, of like you, you can get by on it, but yeah. I wouldn't want to. So yeah, it's a good idea to, to make your own day. arrangements too, I think. Just yeah. assume you're not going to get much. Yeah. yeah. Best, best to assume that you're not going to afford tomatoes. <laughs> so <laughs> might as well grow, grow tomatoes. them. Right. They're free. Right? <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, so we had to have another question on, on Facebook. It's cut off for me, unfortunately, but um, I'm just going to jump to the question. Uh, this person, I think, talking about um, programs, maybe linked to the Isabella Bird documentary, uh, they say, I was curious if you have much awareness about domestically produced foreign content as well as reenactments produced outside of Japan. Um, oh, um, ooh, I, I'm not well. Um, oh, goodness. <laughs> Let's see. Domestically produced foreign content. Do you, do you mean, um, are they talking about things like Tokyo Vice? Um, those kinds of programs? I think um, you might be talking about foreign locations shot in Japan, kind of maybe as a set. Oh, okay. Um, I've only ever worked on one foreign project until now. Um, it was because they, they needed a second assistant director on GI Joe. Um, I don't know if you saw GI Joe snake eyes. It's, it's so, so I'm aware of it. Um, it. Hey, I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. The staff and the cast really was very respectful of Japan and they tried really hard. Right. So even though the end result isn't exactly something to write home about, maybe, um, depending on what your tastes are in film, um, the people who were involved in the project, at least they were respectful, they were very kind. They um, they didn't make a mess, which is something we always worry about. We don't want crew, film crews to come and destroy things while they're filming. Mm. Um, but they, they never caused any trouble whatsoever. Um, the Every single production is different, right? So there's not one production that handles everything. Um, so some of the foreign uh, productions, if they want to go and film in Japan, some of them will approach Nikatsu, which is a, a one of the larger film companies. Recently, I know Toho, which is the largest film company, but Toho recently opened up their a, um, a kogaisha, a smaller company within the company, which is specifically handling the kind of international productions. Um, the productions themselves, the methods of production are similar, but they're not the same as the Japanese system. So you would have to have um, a special specialists. So even if they're Japanese, they have to be trained on the American system in order to get, film it uh, oh. form in Japan in that way. But they have to be aware of the Japanese system. Otherwise, they can't get the permits or whatever it may be um, in order to make the film move forward. So I know that Netflix recently was working. I think it was I think it was Tokyo Vice. I have, I'm not sure. <laughs> One of those Tokyo Vice kind of films or uh, TV series, which is... Um, it's filmed in the, essentially in the Japanese, um, essentially in the Japanese system using Japan. Um, but I think that, I think, I think that the, um, the head staff are foreign. So I'm not entirely sure. I don't usually work with those kinds of programs mm. and it's, there's not a rule. So it's not like one size fits all kind of an answer to that. Um, 
I'm assuming if it, there's a location like something like oh I don't know Idiot Abroad was a wonderful was a wonderful series. Um, when they filmed Idiot Abroad, I'm assuming that it was a smaller level production company which just came in and kind of helped them out. It doesn't look like it was a big production. So, um, I am looking at the comment. It, it, it seems to cut off. I seem to recognize the houses. Is what it just kind of gets cut off. Yes, I um, have access to the thing. Uh, beat, uh, beat Takeshi. There's some mentions Beat Takeshi, but um, Beat Takeshi films in the Japanese system. Um, a lot of the Japanese houses, they all I don't want to say they all look the same, but there is a structure to them. <laughs> but um, Beat Takeshi films in the Japanese style. So he would have Japanese staff doing Japanese um, system, per se. So I don't know if... I think if there was a foreign producer or something like that, there might be a few, um, let's see, there might be a few uh, things which were made especially for him. Like, um, wait a minute, I'm looking at the comment. I, I found the comment here. What was he? Um, old houses around Fusa City and Yokohama. Old American staff houses. Uh, I'm sorry, that must be some sort of a, lo a location question. Yeah, I think I think it was about maybe pe people pretending to shoot abroad, but actually shooting in Japan using oh. that kind of. You know what? You know what I have here. Look, I'll show you something. <laughs> <laughs> Location. Oh, <wow>. <laughs> of He's course, there's, there's a fanzine for it. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> because of course this is new this is new this has only been around for the last what maybe two or three years this is a new um a new it's a it's kind of a government funded program so what they used to have is um the, every prefecture had their own uh film commission right and they still do right the problem is is that the film commissions their their level of expertise is varies extensively so you have couple of grandmas who get together and want famous people to come to their house or you'll have someone who used to be film producer or something which is setting up a location service over in so-and-so prefecture right and as a result what you have to expect when you when you send film crew over there is how much they pay for their locate the locations where do they get their food where do they where can they film how do they get their permits all those kinds of things it'll depend very much on the expertise of the film commission how to get that stuff so this company which is actually government um put, is putting together a uh a kind of a standardized system for the entire country so if you're using grandma's house in kyoto it's going to be the same price as using grandma's house over in sendai right oh. everyone actually gets paid for the work which is good it's a good thing because our industry is absolute crap when it comes to things like that right so um this is a very excellent thing um location japan i'm not sure if the website's in english but i know that they do have a website. So use your Google Translate, whatever click thing on your um, browser if you're looking for locations. And why I mention this is, um, uh, so let's say you want to film something that looks foreign, right? Well, they do have homes that look foreign and they do have locations which look foreign. They don't have sets anymore because they used to, but our industry is kind of running on duct tape and gas so um we don't have the big outdoor location sets like um we do have one from the old from old edo isn't there yeah. a shibuya crossing somewhere there is a shibuya crossing we have a shinjuku, <laughs> we have a shinjuku cross we have a shinjuku um set too over in ibaraki um so there are a couple of them we don't have a lot of stuff for foreign looking places we do have some 
Um, but it's a lot of gomakashi. So it's usually like I think the guy mentioned, Mr. Um, Shannon, that's right, Mr. Shannon mentioned um, that there are houses that were from Yokota Air Force Base or something. And the answer is yes. If you if you go out into the countryside, you're going to find some places which they might have preserved for the sake of um, uh, architectural preservation. And then they rent those out for locations and stuff. But it's not actually a location house. But you could find those over in Location Japan. So go <laughs> Is that available website. in Expensive. convenience stores and stuff? No, I don't think so. You'd I think have to it's order available it. in books. Um, bookstores will have it. Okay. So if there's like a film in a film something somewhere, like if you go to um, Shibuya or Shinjuku, they're gonna you're gonna have it in a larger bookstore. But um, you won't. I don't think that you have it just anywhere. Well, anyway, use the website. Websites are easier, I suppose. Locationjapan.net for people that want to visit that. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. <laughs> all right well thank you so much ricky for taking time to talk to us today it's no problem it was very nice to talk to you too it's been it's been fascinating like yeah. let's say it's what glimpses a, of world that i don't understand so really wonderful to talk to you and i hope we'll get you on again sometime when we come back for right. season two or season three it'd be fun all right so thank you very much uh <laughs> We'll let you go. We're going to carry on with the show. We just say if people <laughs> We've want got another to, hour or so to go. So. If people want to find you on social media, you are. But I'll let you introduce your. Handle if you're comfortable <laughs> with that. Oh yeah, actually, my final question is why? Why paprika? Is that a? Yeah, where does that come from? Um, let's see. I'm Hungarian, so um, you know how Japanese people use wasabi and shoyu and everything. Well, Hungarians use um in everything so that's where it comes from <laughs> are you okay with me sharing your um twitter oh yes please okay awesome. we'll stick that in the in the description then <laughs> yes all right and thank you very much and we hope to have you back someday to talk to us again we'll, we'll get some follow-up right. questions for that yeah. sure of course anytime sure. it's very nice to talk to you all right, cheers. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. wow. I mean, <laughs> I am blown away by all of that. I had no idea. I've been here 23 years, but <laughs> I've got nowhere near that level of uh, integration or, or learning or understanding. So I think I need to start playing catch up, maybe. Wow. Just fascinating sitting and listening. Yeah. yeah. And her Twitter feed is very, she tweets a lot. So yeah, follow her for. Lots of lots more insights. Yeah, if you're interested in any of those topics, then definitely a good place to to start. I think. Yeah, well, I'm going to go back and watch the replay of this afterwards because. Yeah, yeah, take notes. <laughs> I so like this is I... our final episode, isn't it? This season, yeah, not final ever. Oh yeah, I was I was trying to like bait people a bit yeah okay no. so we, we are planning a season two but it won't yeah. be immediate we're gonna leave it until november i think november will come back so we're gonna take a couple of months off there is a there's a there's a time for everything uh, <laughs> but uh yeah so this is our final show for a while this is episode 10 of season one so i've really enjoyed the the journey but <laughs> yeah yeah. Okay, so we got our regular segments today. So we're going to start off with some news, uh, news and and various stuff. 
uh, and then talk about uh, we're going to take a look back at Retire Japan TV this first season. Uh, I've got stuff from the forum as usual, forum shorts, uh, and then we'll take any final questions after that. So news-wise, um, the first story, which I think is going to affect everyone, is that you know I'm seeing news stories that the you know unseasonal hot weather is going to continue into October. So, you know, recent years, we, we've had really hot Septembers, like at least here in Sendai, it seems that September is the hottest part of the summer a lot of years recently. But to go into October is just brutal, I think. <laughs> I'm really not enjoying this uh, climate future that we seem to have stumbled into. Mm. Whole, is that a whole country or just? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they've got these these maps. I've, I've saw these maps. Um, on the news, I think, where everything's purple. You know, it's like, as in, it's it's hotter than usual. Um, yeah. Right through October and even into November. So, it's not going to end anytime soon, apparently. Great. Yeah, it was... Thanks, it was ben. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger. Actually, it was 36 here in Sendai today. And um, I, I just got told my granddaughter actually got heat exhaustion at school. Because they were doing PE outside, doing um, hurdles, of all things. Like you know, they're not doing oh, something hurdles. relaxing, like hurdling. Like wow, oh dear. So she got heat exhaustion. A few of her classmates got heat exhaustion, and uh, I'm gonna have to go in and talk to the principal tomorrow. I think because I don't think this is a sensible policy for the school. So <laughs> I'm gonna go in and discuss that with them. So. Relatedly, I saw somebody on Twitter pointing out that on the news we have constantly people, you know, warning about heat exhaustion, heat exhaustion, and what to do and, and be careful because of the hot weather. And at the same time, we have the Kokoyaku High School Baseball Tournament, middle of the day. I don't know how many hours running around. It's not yeah, really, and not just example. the athletes, but the the spectators. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, for, you know, out there all day. I mean, so the the weather report today in Sendai was actually danger. Please avoid outside activity. So, really? Wow. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to get to the school system. So I think we're kind of we we've got some catching up to do with the the reality of of the current summer, mm -hmm. as opposed to you know people's routines and people's expectations and and. You know, schools are just doing stuff because that's how it's been done, even though, you know, maybe the circumstances have changed. Ah, so. Yes, yes. Speaking of circumstances changing, I, I also saw a documentary last night that I'd like to just go into very quickly um, about Yami Baido, which is not yummy, but rather dark or like dark, kind of dark part-time jobs. Uh, and it's a... It's something that has, has become well-known recently. I don't know how long it's been going on, but basically how it works is criminal elements in, in society will advertise, you know, in normal kind of job publications or websites, they'll advertise part-time work uh, and say it's, you know, delivery or something. And then anyone <laughs> that replies to the job ad is then asked to use uh, an encrypted messaging service to take it further. So n the next stage is to, you know, to, to 
do the interviews and stuff will be done by Telegram or something similar that's encrypted uh, and basically protects the the people on the other end from being discovered. And it's all great. You know, it's, it's a high wage. You get daily wages and so on. And at first, they're just asking you to move stuff around. But part of the application process, they're going to ask you for your information, for your ID, uh, for information about your family. So like they'll ask for Jumihyo, Koseki, that kind of thing. Uh, because later on, when you realize that you don't want to be involved with this stuff, they will then threaten you or your family uh, to keep you oh. doing whatever you're doing. So it's a really, really nasty um, operation. Uh, and they're basically targeting young people who don't have very much experience or don't really understand how things work, uh, and especially young people who aren't able to confide in their family. So this documentary yesterday on NHK, uh, they were actually talking to one of the people that was recruiting you know, students and young people for this stuff. And he said, yeah, we're looking for people who don't have that relationship with their parents, because if they talk to their parents, their parents could, you know, help and support them and get them out. But it's it's you're on your own and you've got this thing mm -hmm. and you get deeper and deeper and deeper like quicksand. So, yeah, yeah, I just find it terrifying. And, and I think it really illustrates that how important it is to, to make sure that you can communicate with your kids mm. or that your kids can tell you stuff. Like all these things, like bullying and, and and problems in schools and and this kind of kind of criminal thing, you can avoid it if if you talk to other people about it. But if you stick it, if you keep it all bottled up, if you try and deal with it by yourself, then you're you're kind of isolated and alone. So yeah, it's it's um, it is very hard though to get your kids to open up if they don't want to. Um, we were quite lucky. Out we have one son, he's now at university. I wouldn't say he's completely open with us, which is fine, but we were very pleased where not long ago he was looking, he was coming out of university, uh, sorry, out of dormitory, and the second year looking for somewhere to live for the second year. This is in Hawaii, so we're not physically there, and he's trying to find an apartment with a couple of friends, and they found this really good one on, online, and he actually contacted us saying, you know, do you think this is okay? And the pictures look beautiful. Like you've got the view of the sea and this tall you know, apartment building and the price was very good. Um, so, okay, this is like, you know, surprising that it's available at that price, but okay. And then they actually contacted the person. The person said, yeah, I'm actually out of the country at the moment. There's some people living in it right now, so I can't give you the key straight away. But if you send me the money, then I'll send you the key when it's available. <laughs> and so they, you know, these young <clears throat> Uh, you know, student age uh, people or some of his friends are saying, you know, do you think that's okay? And without the experience, you know, you don't get those alarm bells going off saying, so no, run a mile. Uh, fortunately, we found a, an online documentary, actually, a Hawaiian local news that had gone and covered this sort of latest spate of these like scam things, sent the link and it was playbook scam that they were fortunately not fooled by, but, you know, sort of could have been yeah, tentatively uh, walking towards. Uh, so yeah, it's um, very fortunate that he felt comfortable coming to ask us. Um, but trying to sort of get your kids to do that, I think, is extremely difficult. You just have to hope that you've got a good enough relationship with them. I th I, yeah, I mean, for me, the the key thing is is to make sure that they can tell you when they're in trouble, and you won't like get angry or be disappointed right. yeah. with them, and that kind of. Th I think that's where it starts. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got I've got stepdaughters, uh, and one of them got mixed up in something nasty in in university, uh, and tried to get out of it. And the the people told her that she couldn't, she wasn't allowed oh. to get out of it. So my wife called them, and of course they don't want to deal with adults. Pet so they were like, "Yep, yeah, okay, fine, forget it." It's fine. <laughs> Misunderstanding. <laughs> no, seriously. Oh, no. So so it's it's so important just to be there uh, and for them to ask for help. Or, yeah. or tell you that they have a problem rather than trying to hide it. So, and those that don't get prayed upon. Yeah, not very, not very happy topic, but I think it's an important one. So, yeah. In yeah. happier news, though, <laughs> yes, you've been watching uh, oh. a lot of TV, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, so a couple of uh, TV-related things. Um, the first one is YouTube. Okay, you might say it's not TV, but I'm convinced <laughs> that the quality of, of some YouTube programming is. Well, I hope that's like retired. It's not offended, but it's really up there. Um, and so Ricky's going to come and kill us. <laughs> <laughs> so I was. Uh, so we're trying to improve the YouTube channel. I hope people have noticed uh, that we put or Ben in particular put a lot of effort into the YouTube channel. And so I've been doing some research, looking at other um, other successful YouTubers. You know, Mr. Beast. Yeah, it's not kind of my kind of thing. And, but I found this guy called Ryan Trahan or Trahan, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, young guy who doesn't really do these, like, okay, well, he does do some kind of like weird stuff. But anyway, he has these series, which is very popular, which is called like the Penny series. And the most recent one, it really gripped me. And I found a lot of it applying to personal finance or in particular, kind of a sort of business uh, attitude, even though he's a young guy doing this sort of YouTube so-called stunt. It was really gripping. It was very, very interesting, entertaining and um, educational, as I'll explain. So I will try to put a link in the chat and we'll put it in the description as well. But basically, Mize is, he is, uh, in this particular version, he's in Europe. Uh, he was in France, I think he started off. He's got one penny, like one American cent, and he has to get back to the US. Or I beg your pardon, one uh, euro cent. And he has to get back to the US. That's like the challenge he's given himself. And he does get money from uh, donations from people watching, which he then donates to a, a charity. The uh, challenge takes place over one week. And so each day is kind of like one sort of episode. And he has a friend who films it and then another friend back home who will then edit it very, very quickly. Turnaround is very quick. And it's kind of done, you know, like casually on a budget, but clearly also very well uh, produced. Mm. It's fascinating. And... I won't tell you if he makes it or not, because it's not actually about whether he does it. It's all about the journey and, and what happens along the way. So I highly recommend watching that. Uh, where's the link? Oh, here, I'll paste the link there. And some takeaways I got from it were, uh, so things that I do, so that he does, that happens, which I think are related to business and success with business or with personal finance. He celebrates his wins, however small. Um, so yeah, the tiniest thing, like he's able to buy a baguette and then he's dancing on the street eating his baguette because he hasn't eaten all day. Um, he appreciate your customers, however small. So to make money, at one point he goes around trying to get jobs like uh, window cleaning and, uh, he just asks for very little money, just wants something. And some people will give him like five euros. One very kind person gives him a hundred euros. And yet he appreciates both as much as each other. He doesn't say, oh, I only got $5. Everything is like, oh, thank you so much. It's so kind, you know, $1, whatever. Um, and that's really sort of gratifying to see. He shrugs off his losses and he moves on. So 
when he went to the UK, his supposedly British friend, I don't know these Brits uh, spreading lies, but Terrible. his friend said, if you pick up rubbish like empty cans, you can put them in these recycling machines and you'll get money. So he spent an hour or two picking up these cans, put them in the recycling machine, and it's just a recycling bin. <laughs> There's no money coming out. So, oh, what? No money. Um, but he didn't seem too upset. He just, okay, right, next thing. He's just like, that was a loss. Doesn't matter. We'll move on to the next thing. Um, so, yeah, I like that sort of attitude. Like, okay, can't change the past. Look to the future. Um, the next one I took was, if your route forward looks too difficult, maybe there is a non-obvious alternative route. So he's trying to get back to the US. Uh, he's trying to get a flight, obviously, but it's too expensive where he is from. So he plans to go to another country, which he can go much more cheaply. And from there, he can get a cheaper flight or, you know, mm -hmm. to another country and another country. So eventually the total cost is much less and it's <clears> affordable, <throat> even though it's not the direct route that uh, like, is the obvious route. Um, when something does work for him, he doubles down. Um, he looks for an unfair advantage. So sometimes we see these challenges and, uh, for example, um, obviously he can't usually pay for accommodation unless he earns the money for it. He has a friend in this particular place in Europe, and so he goes and stays with them for a free night. And you might think, well, that's cheating on the challenge. But I see it as like, no, he's got this advantage, unfair advantage, so-called. He knows somebody there, make the most of it. It's not hurting anybody, and it works in his favor. Um, another unfair advantage, and this kind of applies to us as foreigners in Japan, He's an American. At one point, he's in London. Um, I can't remember which park, but in a sort of busy park. And so he gets his paper, makes a sign saying British jokes, you know, paid uh, by donation or something. And so there he is an American telling so-called British jokes in Britain and doing a bad job of it. But it's funny and people laugh and people give him donations. So he's using his unfair advantage of being um, an American telling British jokes in the same way that some of us might use being a foreigner in Japan to our advantage in some situations. Yeah, like rocking up in a kimono and getting people to tell you about stuff, right? So there you go. Yes, good example, yeah. Um, I mentioned it's all about the journey, not about the actual destination. So whether he gets there in the end or not, it's kind of irrelevant because it's so interesting just to watch him go through it. The next uh, thing I've got is it helps to have a story. So when he's trying to like, get a job or, or um, get people to pay him for some particular thing, each time he gets to tell his story, it works so much better. And I find this in, um, like, as a small sort of business person, I think it always helps to say what your sort of mission is or your backstory to get people sort of more involved. And then obviously you build up trust with that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm reading lots of marketing books right now and it's all about mm -hmm. that. <laughs> right, yes, yes. Uh, he looks for two-in-one opportunities. Uh, this is something I've been doing actually recently. Like if we do something for YouTube, maybe there's a way we can use that content for the blog as well or for social media as well. Uh, the way he does it is he's in a particular country. He needs to get to the other country. And so if he works out, if he gets the overnight bus, he's got two in one. He's got the accommodation and he's got the transport for one sort of single fee. I used to think that, and then I actually took a bunch of overnight buses, and I was like, never am I going to do this again. <laughs> right. Yeah, he does say he didn't get much sleep, but with his minimal money, it's kind of like his only choice, and he didn't have like I, I took the bus to Kyoto once from Sendai, and yeah, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> 15 oh. hours on a bus, like now. Okay, <laughs> and that was before, like now the buses are quite nice. They've got those like mm -hmm. super deluxe sleeper things. 
That oh, wasn't the yeah, case yeah, 20 nice. odd years ago. Mm -hmm. um, another example is like he'll stay at a hostel which has free coffee. And so he kind of sort of gets breakfast included kind of thing. Um, uh, and so another couple of things is appreciate those around you. So clearly, yeah, he's, it, it, it comes across as very genuine how appreciative he is, not just of the sort of customers, but also the guy with him who uses the camera, the guy back home who's doing the editing, you know, um, really shows his gratitude, which sort of makes you feel good watching and think, yeah, I'd love to be part of a team like that. And then the final thing I got from it is that everything is a mindset. So he's stuck in Europe. He's got one cent he needs to get back to the US. And yeah, he's got this sort of team behind him. So nothing really bad is going to happen. But he always has this, not can I do it, but how am I going to do it? And so he starts off with one cent walking down the street. Has anybody got a pen I could buy for one cent? And personally, I wouldn't be brave enough to do that. But everything for him is just like, yeah, there's a way to do it. Let's just try it, see if it works. And well, I'll let you see whether it works out okay for him or not. Nice. Highly yeah, there's, there's all sorts of research that says that if you give a reason, even if it makes no sense, people are more likely oh. to do what you say, right? So they had this yes. experiment yes. where they had um, people trying to cut in line. So, you know, there's a queue at a, a cash register or something, and, and the experimental subject is cutting in line. So, you know, can I cut in front of you because? Uh, and it doesn't matter what is after the because. It still it still helps. <laughs> can I cut rush. in front of you because I like coffee? Uh, and people are like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So. Um, moving on. Uh, so there's one other thing I watched. This was on Netflix, I think it was. A program called The Minimalists. And it kind of ties in with personal finance, especially if we're trying to save money. Uh, it's a, a short documentary with a couple of people who apparently have a very popular website. Um, about minimalism. minimalists i've been I've following them forever oh. yeah yeah like years ago when they had like a blog because mm -hmm. um one of them's a writing instructor i think online so that's oh, right. his his start and then they, yeah they, they got big right they've got netflix shows and all sorts so yes oh yeah it was clearly a you know very <clears throat> proper it wasn't this wasn't youtube ryan style this was a proper you know uh, well-funded very slickly produced um documentary and very interesting i find the way one of them in particular sort of talked quite sort of patronizing like he was looking down on us but it, it's still which um, one the skinny one or the big one the one without the beard i think it was it's a while since oh the skinny one yeah yeah he's he's yeah. he's definitely comes across a bit more um yeah so i'd, I'd say this is Preaching. more orange than blonde but <laughs> oh, <laughs> i needed <yeah>. more time <laughs> comment in the chat <laughs> Um, but yeah, so the minimalists, I got a couple of things I got up from it. If you are wanting to cut down, um, then they have two tactics, basically. One is uh, do a month's challenge. So for one month, one item a day, like sort of get rid of it from your home by you know, throwing it away or, or selling it or whatever. And I actually did this. I'll talk about that in a second. But I thought, oh, that's good. I'll try that. And it was really good fun. And the second tactic, if you don't want to do it sort of gradually like that, is a bit more extreme. So one of the, these two guys held a packing party. Basically, they put all their stuff in boxes as though they were moving home. Uh, so it's like a, it's a big undertaking. Everything in boxes uh, as though they're moving home with clear labels on, so you know what's in what box. And then just sort of leave them in like the living room, whatever. And then you have a... a well, you actually, sorry, the packing party is you get your friends around to help you pack everything up so you can do it in a weekend. And then 
you just live out of the boxes for the next, say, three weeks. And as, as you need things, you take it out of a particular box. So, okay, it's trying, time to cook something. Where's the pan? It's in this box. So you take it out of the box. After three weeks or so, whatever is still in the box or whatever, whichever boxes have not been opened, they're the things you can get rid of. You clearly don't need them. So makes sense. Them. And that's how you can radically <laughs> <laughs> cut down the amount of stuff you have. Uh, the um, how did you do with the, the throwing items? I tried that. I tried the escalating one where you throw something or you get rid of something on the first day and then you get rid of two things on the second day and three things and so on. And, and yeah, I didn't last more than about four days, I think. Okay. Oh, yeah, that sounds tough. Um, so I just did one thing a day and I didn't quite make it to 30 days, but I wasn't really worried because I made it to like 22, 23 days or something. And then it still felt good. So although I didn't make it to the month, I still got rid of a whole lot of stuff and it felt really good and my wife was impressed as well. Uh, in fact, it was so good that um, she also like copied a little bit. So oh, I got rid of some stuff. She saw me, you know, clearing stuff out or selling stuff and it kind of inspired her to, you know, get rid of some stuff as well. We put stuff on Mirukadi and Yahoo Auction and the house we moved into this is uh, about three years ago. It was full of stuff. We, we bought it full of all the previous owner stuff including a box of really old, sticky dolls from 1960s, I guess. Uh, you know, like the Japanese equivalent of Barbie. I cannot, or Rikachan, I think it was. Rikachan, That's isn't it? it? Yeah. And most of them have got like sort of crayon marks on from 40 years ago. They've got a whole bunch of clothes and little shoes. Again, all sticky from kind of like plastic decay. Really horrible. They had the hair cut short. I took photos of those, put them on Yahoo Auction. And in the end, we got 70,000 yen for this box of old, horrible, Damn. scary Ricker dolls. Well, oh, I was supposed to ask you how much you thought I got. Ah, well, okay, 70,000. <laughs> That's a lot more than it. I would have said, though. Couldn't believe it. So, yeah, I might yeah, have gone for like well 3,000, but 70. Wow. Oh, right. Yeah. So, and the person the that bought them for 70 is like, woohoo, this is worth like 400,000. And <laughs> probably, yeah, there were quite a few people bidding. It was going up each day. Oh, what's going on? Um, so yeah, the whole experiment, I didn't make it through the month, but I don't care because it was fun. Got rid of some stuff, which like psychologically is very good. And we got money for stuff that we never thought was worth any, anything. So nice. I recommend get rid of one thing a day for a month or as long as you can. And uh, I did pick out a few quotes from the program, which I thought were good. Um, mm -hmm. So quote number one, our memories are not in our things. Our memories are inside us. Quote number two. The more action you take, the more you want to take action. And this certainly is true. The first few days, certainly, I was like thinking about, right, what can I get rid of tomorrow and the day after that? And I started making a list of the things I'm going to get rid of day by day. And then the third quote is, all I wanted, all I was searching for, all I needed, I already had. So you don't need to keep bringing stuff into your house. You've probably already got what you need. Yeah, they're, they're really inspiring, those guys. Um, mm. Yeah. I got a bit annoyed with them after a while. <laughs> <laughs> like i don't know how sustainable the, the how many new things they have to say you know <laughs> they keep trying to switch the message to keep going but right. um but i think yeah the first year or two that i was following them i found them very helpful i think so the minimalists yeah, ryan and something don't know the other i can't remember the other I guy's name I, I yeah i like the big guy better there's like the the small kind of rodent like one <laughs> there's the kind of big one mm -hmm. so oh, yeah. a guy in the youtube chat just said yeah uh, tyler durden said it best the things you own end up owning you 
Oh yeah. Did you get that reference? What reference? Did what? Who's Tyler know? Durden? I don't know who Tyler Durden is. <laughs> it's from Fight Club, which is a, a oh, book and I a see. film. Okay. Brad Pitt's character. Very, yeah, fantastic. Both. They're quite different, the book and the film, but fantastic. <laughs> this is one more film. Okay, we have um, in our sort of off-podcast uh, off chats, we have so far Lord of the Rings. I haven't seen Lord of the Rings. And Ben says, you haven't seen it? You've got to see Lord of the Rings. Well, the other day it was The Matrix. I haven't seen You haven't seen The Matrix? And now we've got Fight Club. I'm going to have to get a new co-host because this is just not <laughs> acceptable. I'll let you down. Sorry. <laughs> Cool, cool. So that's, but I have watched yeah, YouTube and Netflix <laughs> series, as you can see. <laughs> you what? You you did you read or watched something that I recommended and enjoyed it, right? I did, and I can't remember what it was now. <laughs> okay, so oh, um, the um, oh, the reporter. Um, oh, the insider. Yeah, yeah, the insider. yeah. That was very good. See? Yes, yes, sort of older classic uh, film from who was it? Alchino, Fantastic. All right, on to our deep dive, which is going to be, we're going to take a look back at our Retired Japan first season, which I th I, re I enjoyed so much more than I expected to. Like, the reason I started this is because I needed more watch time on the YouTube channel in order to get monetized. So you need 4,000 hours of watch time. And I thought, how can I get some like long content that people will watch <laughs> without making too much effort? And I thought, yeah, let's do live streams. Great. But like that first one, it was so much fun. I really, it was really, really enjoyable to to do, and it still is. Like these are these are so fun to do. So oh, good. That was my biggest kind of takeaway and biggest surprise that these these live streams are really fun to do, and the guests we've had this time, whew, mm. this first season, we've been really lucky, I think, with guests. So um, I'm just going to go through the episodes um, one by one. So the first episode. Uh, we started off, we didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> we were doing it on Zoom as well, which was not a smooth process. Mm. Um, but really fun. I actually watched it. I watched most of it today. Um, and it was really, yeah, it was fun. It was interesting. We got through a lot of content, I think. Uh, do you remember the first episode? Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> We, we kind of started exploring the the segments that have turned into you know the news section and the the deep yeah. dive and so on um i think we were mainly talking about the first 10 million course oh yeah because it was it was launching at that time i think yeah. so we spent a bit of time talking about that uh basics of personal finance in japan and so on so and then the second episode, the best thing for me for the second episode is that I got you to wear the Santa hat because you really didn't want to, but you played along and you're a good sport about it. So Yeah, thank you. It's Christmas coming soon again, isn't it? Oh, dear. Yeah, yeah. So in December. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. No, that was, that was, I think we, we kind of got the format down a bit on the second one. Yes, yes. And then episode three, we had our first guest which was a big milestone, I think. So we got LaShawn Toyota, I think. Was that her yep. name? Yeah. Yep. And yep. she was great. She was such a good first guest for us. So she, her basically, the reason we invited her on is because she, she started off teaching English in Japan and then she taught herself to code using, you know, free online stuff and, and schools uh, and then got a programming job in, what was it, four months or something? 
Yes. Um, so yeah, I, we sort of arranged this beforehand and to pull out our highlights. And so I sort of got three, and this is one of my three. She had a baby at the time. I think she didn't have the baby, but like she had a small child, uh, baby aged child at the time that she gave up her teaching job, started to study from scratch, completely different career, and then managed to find a job, which in itself, I think, uh, seemed to be hard work. Very inspiring. Um, yeah, really enjoyed that. I'd like to get her back again, actually. Um, for what like career are you doing now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, she's a rocket scientist now, you know? yeah. <laughs> self-taught. Yeah, that was, yeah, fascinating. And then episode four, we, we were supposed to have a guest, but it fell through. So you, you had a cunning plan for that one. This is another of my highlights, my three highlights, because I really enjoyed it. <laughs> because we asked ChatGPT, we gave ChatGPT a voice. This is when there was sort of a lot of buzz about, well, there still is, but particularly there's a lot of buzz about ChatGPT at the time. And so we fired some questions at it. And it wasn't bad. Some were okay, some missed the mark. Uh, but I enjoyed just the fact that we could do that. And I think that <clears> will be quite an interesting sort of snapshot that we could revisit in a year or whatever's time and just sort of, see the progress that uh, uh, yeah i mean because because that was the height of you know excitement and and you know amazement at the whole um language learn large language model thing yeah which i think is burst now i think everyone's like okay so we, we've got a bit more kind of perspective on this now maybe for you it's not for me but yeah really? <laughs> most most people <laughs> you're deep in the matrix of, I, am, uh... I love it yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you're that they're, they're more friends with you than with me. I've kind of tried <laughs> it and been like, okay, it's kind of it's more like a party trick from from what oh, I can see. Oh, really? But Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like, it, for for me at least, for the kind of things that I'm trying to do and and the content I'm trying to create, it's kind of uh, it's not good enough. It's like yeah. it's it's almost there. It looks good, but then you look, you actually read it carefully, and it, it's not so. So this whole like they're going to replace writers and uh, I don't know, unless the Chat GPT five is is you know another exponential leap or something. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see, won't we? And talking about five, <laughs> episode five, we got the Donigans on, uh, which is fun, yes, um, especially because they came and saw me the week after in Sendai. Oh, nice, nice. Um, but the the main takeaway from it, we forgot to tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> that the, their their section ended <laughs> it was very awkward do you remember that so it was very awkward kind of like uh okay so oh yes 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 yeah yeah we forgot to tell them about the structure of the show so <laughs> still learning episode six we started using Streamyard, which i love they don't sponsor us unfortunately but i think it's an amazing platform it makes it really easy to do this stuff so if you're doing this kind of online interviews or meetings or stuff like StreamYard, it's wonderful. Connects to all the social media automatically. So you can just live stream to multiple places. Yeah, it's been a, it's made even easier for me because Zoom was a bit temperamental. Like we had yeah. lots of issues with Zoom, didn't we? Yeah, setting it up. We'd start and then be like, oh my God, it's not on. <laughs> yeah. Or the wrong URL for some reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'd tell everyone, hey, we'd give everyone the wrong place to. <laughs> happen, yeah. yeah. On the mortgage episode, I thought was was fantastic. Oh yes, I learned a huge amount with that. Emil, and he he was in a campsite in Australia. Like, 
<laughs> with like a virtual background. And the kids running around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kept expecting a dingo to walk through or something. Like, yeah. He, he is cool. good, though. He's got um, a lot of practical knowledge that he's very happy to share. Yeah, yeah, fantastic resource. And, and yeah, again, someone that I'd like to get back on again as well. Mm. Uh, episode seven, we talked to Shaney about international schools and education. Mm. And that actually, I think that was our longest episode by, by quite a long way. It was almost three hours. <laughs> but it, it went by really quickly, at least for me. So, mm -hmm. Episode eight, um, I talked to Dean about US taxes. Uh, we we actually survived getting through a whole episode without Daniel, but it was yeah. it was a close run Sorry. thing. We missed you. Uh, <laughs> you've recovered from your your injuries now, fortunately. Nearly, nearly, yeah. And then episode nine, last time we got to talk to Derek, which was cool because I've been wanting to talk to him for a long time. And he, like Ricky, is an amazing kind of cosmopolitan person who experiences Japan on a level that I don't really understand even. Yeah. Very, very different varied. from my own life. So. Yeah, very varied sort of experiences and interests. Yeah. yeah, so it's been an amazing journey. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm actually going to go back and watch some of these episodes again, I think. Uh, uh, and I'm looking forward to season two, where we're going to have some new faces, some old faces. And just, uh, yeah, I'd add my third highlight. It's the, the one that we had earlier, the I guess we had earlier. Um, I just really, really enjoyed hearing not just about how integrated Ricky is with the Japanese culture, but the sort of the inside story of the, how the TV, the film industry works here. I had no idea about any of that kind of stuff, and it was fascinating. And then the I kimono do... stuff that got oh, that, me. Yes, the fact that yes. you're foreshadowing the seasons, and you've got yeah. you're supposed to have dozens of kimonos just to do. I like that's amazing. <laughs> when we moved into this house again, um, you know, with the old the dolls, there was um, a room with a cupboard full of kimono, and we just I, I did a bit of research online and kimonos are apparently worth next to nothing, so we just got rid of them. I wish I hadn't now. Oops. <laughs> it could have been somebody who really appreciated them. Ricky's mm. gonna come and sharpshoot to you in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I did also grab a, a quote that she said earlier as well. Uh, the people you hang out with are the ones who are going to create your world. I really like that. So that's it. That's yeah, it. it's 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 very true. So finding your circle is um... mm. And I, I guess for me too, with personal finance, you know, once I started Retired Japan and, and people came to the forum and, and I've learned more than anyone, I think, just from being exposed to all these people. So mm -hmm. yeah, very, very true. And you can make your circle online as well as in real life, right? So. I think so, yeah. Ooh, we've got some questions. Uh, we do, yes. Uh, um, oh, I'll do this one. You might have addressed this earlier in the episode. How is your knee, Ben? Um, amazingly... Um, I was I was because I had a, a operation a couple of years ago on my hip and that was painful and I was weak for a long time and it took ages to to be able to walk again and this time next day uh, I didn't feel any pain so it's keyhole surgery on the meniscus um, they they had cut two little holes and went in with like a camera and a knife or whatever and yeah it's amazing so very little pain there's there's, there's a bit of limitation so I can't bend it more than ninety degrees I can't really put impact on it. But um, yeah, amazed. Like I should point out for people, this is planned surgery. He's not had some terrible accident, accident or anything like that. It's all, it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Meniscus uh, repair. So so far so good. Um, and you're standing, I think, which is a good sign. Yes. So, ta da! 
<laughs> on two feet. Um, also, ooh, this is a huge question. Have we done this? We've done something like this, haven't we? Yes. I can't remember which episode there. But I'm going to add it to the YouTube list. Oh, what YouTube list is that, Ben? Uh, it's, the, it's the ideas list. <laughs> oh, of episodes, right. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will add that to idea. the YouTube yeah. ideas. So at some point, this will become a YouTube video because it's a huge topic. It's so important. Um, it's something that I dealt with. So my wife initially was not in the slightest bit interested in money, was very distrustful of investing uh, and it took ages for us to figure out what we wanted to do with our finances and get on the same page and so on so yeah definitely going to be talking about this um there are a couple of good netflix shows actually actually um get there's one called get smart with money which has a lot of sort of interesting characters um in it, it i mean it's not, not characters as in like fictional characters but like people who are with very interesting personalities and I think that's quite a good program for people not interested in finance to watch because you watch it more about the people, but then it kind of you know, teaches you. It's like three different stuff. couples, isn't it? And they get a coach each uh, uh, and work through stuff, right? Yes, yeah. Yes. And then Ramit's thing, right? Ramit's so, one is very good as well. Yeah. And his podcast, so he's got hundreds of podcast episodes where he talks to people about their relationships and their money. Um, mm -hmm. Really interesting. Yeah. Awesome. So fantastic first season, second season from November. I think the same kind of schedule, right? We'll do what, one Monday evening a month kind of thing. Yeah. If people have a strong opinions, then send us a message on Twitter or and if, if, if you've got ideas for guests as well, like we've got a short list, we've got about 15 people that we're thinking of, but always open to more. So if you've got a, an interesting friend, please do suggest them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we'll be in touch all right so forum shorts yes go for it uh, okay. as a reminder for everybody the forum is the retire japan forum at retirejapan.com slash forum and the forum shorts are basically topics that have come up recently on the forum uh and recently we had a topic where someone was asking about tattoos and swimming pools so obviously they have a tattoo and they're, they're trying to get find a swimming pool where they can swim and they haven't found one yet. They've been refused at a bunch of places. So that was an interesting topic. A few people chimed in and said, yeah, this pool might be okay and so on. So yeah, if you've got a tattoo and you found a pool that works, then you might want to drop in there and, and offer some advice. There is a retiree group meetup in Shinjuku uh, in September. So if you are in Shinjuku and you are retired or close to it, you might want to go along and say hi. That's a good idea. There was a topic about taxes after retirement. So, you know, in retirement, am I going to pay less in tax? And uh, the answer is it depends. <laughs> so oh. go and check that out. Um, uh, taxes when selling a house so this was a big one so when you sell your house if the price has gone up which is less common in japan but not unheard of um you might have to pay capital gains on the increase however if you've lived in the house for a while there is a uh, tax-free allowance of up to 30 million yen that you can claim so you don't have to pay those capital gains um so go and check that out you could save a lot of money although the tax office will probably tell you about it they're quite good in that way mm -hmm. um 
one of our longest threads is 133 comments on this. Uh, wow. So who's actually retired in Japan? Uh, and it's actually stayed on topic because a lot of our threads don't stay mm. on topic, but this one mm. did. So uh, if you want to see what kind of person might retire in Japan, that's a good place to look. Uh, the opposite end of the range. So people were asking about what age uh, babies can go to daycare <laughs> and what age people have put their kids into daycare at. So that was a... Uh, the opposite of retirement basically uh someone was going to be posted abroad by their company and they were wondering what's going to happen to their bank accounts to their broker accounts to their nisa accounts and that kind of thing uh so huge if that's going to happen to you and then there's a slightly morbid one where <laughs> I, I was facing you know general anesthetic and surgery and i started thinking okay so what happens if i don't wake up you know <laughs> Uh, and basically what would happen to retire japan in that situation and so i think i want to make sure that uh if i get hit by a bus you know the site isn't just going to die completely and that someone will be able to carry it on so still still a work in progress on how to actually achieve that but we're working on it and that's it so any final questions so we've got a question about interest rates yeah um <clears throat> uh basically it's uh, so far it's been relatively easy to refinance or to to remortgage things um as long as you still have the salary requirements and so on but the the slight danger here is if the economic conditions change banks might be less willing to give mortgages I guess. So this is talking about if interest rates rise and you lock in, you get a fixed mortgage now and then they, they fall in the future. Um, would you want to refinance your mortgage? The, the One key thing to talk about, though, is that rates have not risen. In fact, they seem to have gone down. So now I'm, I'm I, my mortgage is 0.5%. It's a floating rate mortgage. I took it out five years ago. It's still 0.5%. Uh, and I've seen people getting new mortgages now at like 0.3%. Oh, really? So we are seeing inflation, but we are not seeing interest rates rising at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a bit premature to, to rush into fixed rate mortgages now because it doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, and I think something like 80% of mortgages in Japan are floating rate mortgages. So if interest rates rose enough to to make people uncomfortable they would be making a lot of most of the country uncomfortable i think that's kind of politically untenable mm -hmm. so that's another factor to think about mm -hmm. uh, and also government debt is based on interest rates so the government has a huge incentive to try and keep those as low as possible so they're not paying too much in interest payments on that which mm -hmm. is a, a yeah, just an idea. I don't know if it's it's necessary to to be rushing into things. Yet. Although you will probably want to, exp um, you know, check out your options here. <clears throat> oh, I um, would be very surprised if mortgage rates went to one percent in the near future. But yeah, maybe worth mentioning as well that um, there is that cap, isn't there? The government sets the cap on um, financial institutions not being able to charge more than is it 25 yes so th 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 what that <clears throat> that's a cap on your payments so the interest rate can go up 
the amount you owe can go up, but your monthly payment can only go up so far. So in the long run, if interest rates go up, it's, it is going to be painful. But um, in the short run, your your monthly payments are not going to go up all that much. Mm -hmm. yes. So you're fairly protected there. Um, can I finish off with one question, please? Yeah. Um, you were talking about what happens about reti um, retired Japan. Similarly, in a um, family situation, it would be more convenient sometimes for us to have a joint account. So if my wife and I are considering having a joint account, what accounts do you recommend in Japan? Ah, well, so in Japan, um, you'll find that banks don't offer joint accounts. At all? None at all? At all, because it's not possible for two people to own the same money. So because even spouses have to pay gift tax when they give money to each other, oh, yeah, you yeah. can't share your money. So it's, yeah, you can't really do that. Um, even people that, you know, share living expenses and so on, um, they basically have one account in one person's name and maybe the other person can, can you know, draw on that account for household expenses but it's still the first person's money so, so no joint accounts in Japan. no joint accounts oh, okay well, so I, I guess if, the old... if one person died and that would be their estate and it could be taxable if it was over the you know tax-free limit for inheritances makes me think um maybe um what ricky sam was saying earlier about that uh, creating a small business for the for a couple might be a good solution in some situations. Could be, could be. Um, so obviously companies, you know, have a minimum tax and so on. So you'd have to really understand oh, all the numbers right. for that. Yeah, yeah. So at least I think it's based on the region. So at least in Miyagi, I think you have to pay 70,000 yen, even if the, the company's in the red. That's the minimum kind of company tax that you okay. have to pay every year. So you'd have to have some kind of side income coming in to make that worthwhile. Yeah, exactly. Or, <laughs> so, okay, Hydro Raven. This is Hydro Raven speaking, not retired Japan. He says, <laughs> or, or he or she says, the only solution is through the under mattress bank. Yes. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the tip. <laughs> awesome. So that I think that brings us to the end of um, Retired Japan TV. Yeah, season one. <laughs> In the back. Indeed, indeed. Awesome. Right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to everyone that joined us live. Uh, thanks to Ricky for joining us and, and telling us about her fascinating life. And thanks to you, Daniel. Thanks for being my co-host on well, this first season. And we'll see everybody um, we'll in be November. back in November. <laughs>